This morning I can't help but think of over the past many months and even years leading up to this election, um, you've heard it yourselves over and over and over and over again probably that this election would be the most important election of our lifetime. And I believe that to be true. However, I also believe that God is sovereign and that God puts those in authority whom He chooses over us. And so I don't want you to walk around if you're a conservative thinking that somehow we got the raw end of this deal. Because Christians can still be hopeful because of the simple fact that nothing of significance has changed. God's sovereignty has not changed. My salvation has not changed. God's character has not changed. America's future has not changed. And lastly, the urgency of the church's message has not changed. I want to try to point us in the right direction this morning by getting us to think a little more biblically about government and elections and things like that. And if you'll turn over to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, by the way, Al, happy birthday. I think it's Al, Al, how old are you? Albert. He's too old to hear. Hey Al, how old are you? Ninety-three. Now you'll be ninety-four. Will you be ninety-four, or you're you are ninety-three? When's your birthday? When's your birthday? When? When is your birthday? There you go. He's ninety-three years of age. Today. So he's been around the block a couple of times. He still makes it around the block, believe it or not. <laughs> still drives his car. So we want to thank Al and the Lord for giving him to us. But I want you to focus this morning with me a little bit that we need to think biblically about our government. And first of all, in Romans chapter 13... No matter what side of this government you're on, I just want to read this for us because it reminds us that we need to submit to our government authorities. It says in Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the God what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We need to be in subject to our governing authorities. Secondly, I want you to see there that we need to be in prayer for our leaders. I hear a lot of criticism going around about our current president, but I don't hear a lot of people praying for him and his family. And I think that is essential. It's a command found in God's Word that we do so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, first of all, in other words, this is the most important thing. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings, or you can put in their presidents, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We not only need to submit to our governing authorities, but we also need to pray for our leaders. Barack Obama should be on your prayer list. His wife should be on your prayer list. His daughter should be on your prayer list. Vice President Joe Biden should be on your prayer list. Members of the Senate, members of the House. We need to pray for these men and women who are attempting to lead our country. We may think they're going in the wrong direction. Well, we need to pray for them. And lastly, we also need to simply remember that our hope is not here. Amen? (laughs) Our hope has very little to do with this world. Jesus, when he was here on earth, said that his He is a king, and he has a kingdom, but it's not of this world. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So this morning I want to talk about God bless America or God judge America. I can't help but think that our nation has divinely come under the hand of judgment from the Almighty God. Leading up to this election, most people... looked at the situation and it was almost like there's no way we're going to go down this path again. Just no way. 
pundits on both sides of the aisle were kind of speaking their wisdom. And a lot of conservatives had egg on their face after the, serv- after the election. And I can't, couldn't help but think, with that storm, Hurricane Sandy, hitting at that moment, and they say that that may have just generated enough compassion and given our current president enough exposure to pull this thing off and to win re-election. Even though his party stands for everything that is against biblical principles from the sanctity of life to marriage, even illegal drug use, all these things. When you look at the different propositions that have gone through in this election in certain states, promoting homosexual marriage, promoting illegal drug use, and they won hands down in a lot of places. I want to ask you this morning, can God bless America? We sing that song, we hear that said, we pray for His blessing upon our country. But I think that a lot of times we don't understand what we're praying for. Billy Graham was quoted as saying, if God did bless America, He would have to repent. given our current situation. I mean, what would that be saying about the morality of our God, who's holy and just in every way, if He blessed a country who continues to kill the unborn baby, millions, millions, who continues to promote an activity, homosexuality that is an abomination before a holy God. What would that say about a God who would bless a nation who has literally walked away from His Word and His guidance? There would be something wrong with that. Could God bless America and protect His reputation as a holy God? I would have to say no at this point in time. Well, what does it take to be blessed by God? What do we need to be blessed by God? The the Word of God tells us. uh, A lot of times we just think, well, that just means safety and security and prosperity, all those things. But to be blessed by God, there's got to be some repentance on our part. There's got to be a turning away from the direction we're headed. I don't hear that from people. I hear, well, we got a, this fiscal cliff we're up against and we've got to compromise and we've got to do this. I don't hear anybody politically saying that, no, we need to get back to affirm the law of God. We need to go back to the Word of God. We need to cry out for forgiveness. We need to repent. And because of that, we're in no position really to be blessed as a nation. 
we're actually in a better place to be cursed or judged. And I think that's exactly what is happening to our nation. What are the conditions of God's blessings? Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. I just want to look at a couple Old Testament verses that lay out the conditions whereby God blesses His people. Now at this particular point in the history of Israel, they're coming to the end of a long curse, a long judgment. They have been experiencing divine judgment. And that judgment had to come to an end. And they're in a position to be blessed. So they went back to the land of Israel from their captivity in Babylon, where they had been there for a minimum of 70 years. And they went back to the land, and they wanted God's blessing on them as a nation. When they got there, their land was in rubble. Their cities were torn down. And they pitched together, and they began to rebuild it. Nehemiah mainly focuses on the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. They needed to rebuild the temple. They needed to kind of reconstitute their worship. And they desperately, they wanted the blessing of God and began to move in the right direction in chapter 8. And they all gathered as, as one man at the square which was at the front of the water gate, says there in verse 1. And they asked Ezra, who was a scribe. They told Ezra the scribe to bring what? What's it say? Bring the book of the law of Moses, that the law that the Lord had commanded Israel. If there was going to be any kind of blessing after this divine judgment that they just encountered, If there was going to be any future of blessing, they had to go back to the book. They had to go back to God's Word. And so they say, bring the book. Verse 2, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. It says in verse Three And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. See, they realized that if there was going to be any kind of blessing from God, they had to return to what they knew to be the truth. When you get off the message in your Christian life, when you get off the beaten path in your Christian life and you find yourself off on this side road somewhere, I guarantee you it's because you've gotten away from the book. You've gotten away from the Word of God. You've gotten away from the truth. Maybe you chased something that you were interested in. Maybe you thought, well, this, this looks good over here. Maybe this is true or whatever. Whenever you get away from God's truth, you're getting literally away from God Himself. 
Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. So we have to remember that. The key phrase is there, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. See, if there was going to be any blessing, it had to come as they returned to the book. And it says there that he read for hours and hours and hours before the people. He was standing, it says in verse 4, at a, you might say a wooden pulpit almost. It says a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood, gives a bunch of names there. I'm not going to go through all the names. Verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Not because he was some hot shot, but because they had a respect for the Word of God. Because they elevated the Word of God. They elevated, and that's the way it was in a lot of older churches. Even when I preached down in Trinidad at a Presbyterian church when we were down there one time, you know, they had this pulpit and it was way up high. It was just kind of weird. You had to walk up there, these little steps, and you get up there and you're kind of like in this, away from everybody. Kind of different than what we do it today. But that showed a respect to, to who was bringing forth the Word of God. And it says that when Ezra opened this book, he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Somebody says, well, why do you have a stand every time you read when the beginning of the service when you read the Scripture? This is why. It's out of respect of God's Word. It's not a legalistic thing. I mean, if you can't, if you're handicapped and you can't stand, I'm sure God understands. It's not a big deal. But for those of us that can stand, standing is is a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. That's why we do that. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the people. Or Ezra blessed the Lord, the, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. One point they're standing up, the next point they're down on the ground. What's that? It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of of worship. And it says in verse... Verse 8, at the end of verse 7 there, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave, what? The sense. They helped the people understand what they were being read, that the people understood the reading. Kind of translating it for them, giving them understanding that's what we do hopefully every week here we open up the word of god and hopefully try to give it some sense try to apply it to our lives try to help you understand what it what it's saying how we can apply this this is really the beginning of what i like to say expository preaching they went through it they began to read it and as they were reading it they gave sense to what they were reading 
See, if there's ever going to be blessing from God, not only on us as individuals, not only on us as a church, but even on us as a nation, it starts with bringing the book back. It starts with founding our principles from the Word of God. In verse 18, if you jump down there, it says, And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. He just kept reading. Day after day. While the people stood and listened. I mean, that's a lot of reading. That's a lot of listening. But see, that, that shows us a truth about the very Word of God that we have in our hands, is that it doesn't return void, that it's powerful. I mean, you want to see your life change? When you have time, downtime, put on a headset with an audio Bible and just listen to the Word of God. Sometimes I'll be laying in bed. I go to bed way before my wife ever does. She'll be in the other room yelling something to me, and I have my headphones on. I don't know what she's saying. Still come in, what do you know? I'm listening to either I'm listening to a sermon or I'll be listening to the Word of God. Just somebody reading, reading it. That's so important. And when you get away from that as individuals, or you get away from that as a church, or you get away from that as, as a nation, you're not going to incur God's blessing. You're going to incur his judgment. And then look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with, their earth, on, and with earth on their heads. The posture of kind of humiliation, of repentance, of penitence. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. See, now we're at a point where we're getting something done here. You bring the book. The book reiterates to us the law of God, the truth of God. The people hear the law of God, and now they're very much aware of why they've been cursed in the first place. (laughs) So they begin to recognize their sin. The sins that threw them into this captivity in the first place. And here they're posturing themselves before a holy God and they confess their sins and their iniquities and the iniquities of their father. It says in verse 3, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession. And worship the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood a bunch of guys. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And it says there at the end of verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord alone. You have made heaven. You have made the heavens. The heaven of the heavens. 
with all their hosts and the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found this heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Gergesite. And you have kept your promise, for you are what? Righteous, it says. For you are righteous. It's so important for us to understand that we need to get back to that posture before God as individuals and as a church and as, more importantly even, a nation. And so he goes, you can read it, we're not going to take time to read it, he reads the history here, how God is just powerful and how his sovereign work in Israel has, has worked on their behalf. He talks about Egypt and the Red Sea and all this stuff, pillar of fire by night. But if you work your way all the way down to verse 29, they're reminded again that they were admonished to turn back to the law of God. It says in verse 29 of Nehemiah 9, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet, what's it say? They acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. I mean, there's a lot of people in our country that look at this past election is almost a mandate for the extreme liberalism that we see in our country just to be the rule of the land. And you can go right across the board from homosexuality to abortion to redistributing wealth, all those things. It's almost like they feel they have a mandate even though, yes, electorally, He won hands down. But beloved, our nation is divided. More than any other time, our nation is divided. I think the popular vote in this past election came out 50% to 48. That's a divided country. And in spite of all the signs we see, in spite of all the tsunamis and earthquakes and things going awry in foreign countries with our diplomats, in spite of all the cover-ups and people not being honest and infidelity here and there, people aren't getting it. They aren't waking up. They're not saying, oh, we're headed in a wrong direction as a country and as a people. But I think that a majority are turning their stubborn shoulder and they're stiffening their neck and they're saying, we're not going to listen to you Christians. We defeated you. We won. Go climb back into your cave. 
I think it's so important to understand that that we serve a gracious God, amen? We serve a patient God. It says in verse 30 of Nehemiah chapter 9, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, it says in verse 31, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I just want to put this in perspective. Who are we talking about here? We're not talking about America. (laughs) We're talking about Israel. We're talking about God's chosen people. He has a covenant with Israel. God has no covenant with America. We're just like every other nation on the round the block. We don't have any special dibs on God. Yes, our, our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian biblical principles, I think, and, and it flourished as a result. But you can go through the timeline of our history and you can, you can see when it starts to turn down, as soon as they start to turn away from the principles that we find in God's word. And it's hard to sit by and to watch. And it's easy to get distracted thinking, well, gee, we have to change more laws. We have to... No, you know what? We're on a downward slope, folks. This, this is, I think this is going to be the norm from here on out. I don't see people interested in national revival or repentance or anything of the, of the nature. And you read Bible prophecy, there's no mention of the United States in history at all. So you have to stop and you have to say, where are we at in this whole mix? We need to go back and we need to reevaluate. We need to bring the book. We need to read the law of God. We need to confess if we disobeyed it. And then we need to encounter God's blessing as a result. Even over in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, once again, we see in Scripture how God will bless. He's talking about idolatry in the, the prior verses there in 2 Kings, but in verse 13, it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of His prophets in every Seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I have commanded your fathers and which I have sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Then it says this, however, they did not listen, but they stiffened their necks like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. See, this is the problem. Bottom line, it's unbelief and disobedience. It's unbelief and disobedience. That's why when I began my message, I I wanted you to, to be reminded that the mandate on the church has not changed. Our message should ring louder and louder. The circumstances we find ourselves in. 
In verse 15 there, he says, They rejected his statutes, his covenants, which he made with their fathers, his warnings, which he warned them. They followed emptiness, vanity, and became empty. When after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to be like them. In other words, they just looked around and they just took on everything that God said, don't. (laughs) They said, no, bring it on. In verse 16, it says, they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, for they made themselves molten images, even two calves, made an Asherah, which is a form of an idol, worshipped all the host of heaven, served Baal. They made their sons and daughters pass through the fire, literally incinerating their children in sacrifices to the idols. They practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And that's talking about the captivity of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of the north called Israel, the kingdom of the south called Judah. The northern kingdom had taken captive by Assyria. Verse 19, he goes on, But also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. In other words, Judah, the more kind of resistant to all the idolatry, Judah was in in Judah was Jerusalem, the city, the temple. There was a stronger influence to stay true to the scriptures in Judah. But eventually, Judah caved in too. The northern kingdom, taking captivity in 722, the southern kingdom was taking captivity in 586. So a hundred and some years later, Judah caves in, to this compromise. They didn't keep the Lord's commands. Began to basically consume the same things which Israel had done and what they had introduced. The kingdom was divided after Solomon. Verse 20, it says, The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. See, the bottom line is this. It's very simple. If, if, even if you're a covenant nation, even if God sets his love divinely upon you, and you're recipients of this eternal, everlasting promises from God, you still have to meet the conditions of blessing or you're going to be cursed. And that's for a covenant people. We're not a covenant people, beloved. Like I said, we're just another nation. Even over in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, or chapter 7, verse 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, chapter 7, verse 19. Maybe I should go to 2 Chronicles chapter 9, I don't know. No. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 19. It says, but if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them then i will 
pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight. I will make it a proverb and a a byword among the peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and lay hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. When you have a nation clearly pick a candidate and a party that stands for the death of unborn children, the unholy act of homosexuality, I mean, you can go right down the list to the point where they take God out of their little charter. I mean, I think that's a joke anyway, but you know, then they had to quickly put it back in. It's ridiculous. But that's what our, our nation has gone down this path. And I think apart from any kind of national repentance and brokenness, apart from any kind of national contrition for having turned our backs on God and on His Word, repenting from living in sin, There's no way that God would bless our country and bless our people. Psalm 81, 11, verses verses 11 and 12 says this, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. See, if you disobey God, you will never be blessed. That's true individually in our own lives. That's also true collectively. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Aren't we done with that? No, this is all the Word of God. You want God's blessing in your life, in your church, in your nation? God repeatedly said in in, in In Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. Over and over. Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead and the people of Israel are ready to cross the Jordan. And they come into the land of God that he's promised them. It says in verse 3, God says of Joshua 1, God says every place on which the sole of your foot treads I'm going to give to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, even as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. That's a lot of land. Verse 5 says, I'm not only going to give it to you, but nobody is going to ever to be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as it's been with Moses. I will be with you. I will not fail or forsake you. Nobody is going to be able to overthrow my ultimate purpose for you. We read these verses and we think, okay, this is good. 
Be strong and very courageous, it says in verse 6. Now he's speaking directly to Joshua. He says, be strong, courageous. You shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to your fathers to give to them. Verse 7, he repeats it. How many times have we written this in a card to somebody? Only be strong and very courageous. And here it comes. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. He's saying, what's he saying? He's saying, I want to bless you. I want to help you. I want to help you in this new land. But be careful to do everything according to the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. If you turn from the law of God, I guarantee you will not have success. You will not have prosperity. You will not enjoy safety, protection, or well-being. The key is this in verse 8. This book of the law, the word of God, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Learn it, absorb it, make it your own, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. See, the principles of God's blessing haven't changed at all. When our nation was founded on basic Christian principles, and you can do that whole research thing, the revisionists would say, oh, no, no, none of these men were Christians, and that's a big fairy tale. Well, you know, I, I just disagree. I mean, history bears out what it bears out. I'm not saying they were all born-again, solid believers, but they had a semblance of who God was, and they had a respect for some principles in his word. And our nation was founded upon that. And when you look back and you see, wow, these are t- there were times when they actually had church in the Senate chambers on Sundays. And the President of the United States would ride his horse over and they would sit there in the big atrium of the, the Senate building and a pastor would come in and they would have a, a service there, a Christian service. And now we have all this separation of church and state and yet you go to our own Capitol building and you see God everywhere. Everywhere. Inscriptions and quotes. See, they just kind of play that down. You see how far we've come. Our nation was so blessed by God. I mean, we're, we're still the best nation in the world as far as I'm concerned. Superpower, the whole thing. There's more prosperity in this nation than there, there is anywhere. And now we're falling on hard times and we begin to wonder why. We've strayed away from what we were founded on. See, the principles haven't changed. I think Americans want success. I think Americans want prosperity. They want to be safe and secure. But see, all those things are bound up in the very fact that, you know what, if that's true, then they need to get back to the law of God. They need to meet the God of the law. I mean, on our coins, we have God. We sing God in our songs. 
we are kind of in desperate place here because we think of ourselves as a Christian nation. We just take that for granted. I want you to turn on to, over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And just for the next several minutes, kind of want to take you through this because I'm sorry, we're not a Christian nation any longer. We're not. And it's, it's sad, but it's true. In Romans chapter 1, look at what Paul writes in verse 16. I'll give you the good news before I give you the bad news. <laughs> Romans 1 verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of salvation. The good news that somehow, you know what? You can't work your way to heaven. You can't deal with your own sin. That's impossible. The gospel says, you know, you, you have to come to the end of yourself. And when you come to the end of yourself and you cry out to a God, God be merciful to me, a sinner, that's when God answers with the good news of the gospel. Hey, you know what? Jesus died in your place for your sin. Even though he was sinless, he paid the perfect price, the ultimate price. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The Lamb of God who was perfect in every way, never committed a sin at all. Took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever believe in his name. And the Bible says that he was made sin on our behalf. He paid the price for us. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, look at what it says, the power of the dynamite, dunamis, of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, the problem with our churches today in general is somehow they've come to a point in time where they've, they've exchanged the gospel for some kind of morality. They think if we can just make America more moral, stop the abortion, and stop the murdering, and stop this and that and the homosexual. If we can just make all this sin stop, then we'll be blessed by God. No, we won't. No, we won't. And unfortunately, that's become the agenda of the modern day church. Somehow affect change in our world through political and, and moral means. The only way we're going to affect change in our world, beloved, is one heart at a time. One heart at a time, introducing the good news of the gospel to that lost sinner and saying, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they answer affirmatively and say, yes, I, I need salvation, I, I am lost, then you watch God transform that person. And then you take that person and that person shares the good news with somebody else. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to transform a whole society or a whole culture. So many churches today are worried about what the culture, we've got to fit in with the culture. Everything's about the culture. Who cares about the culture? I mean, when Jesus comes back, I'm not going to care about the culture. 
I'm going to be out of here. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I ask you this morning, have you believed the gospel? Do you understand that there's no way out of your sinful condition other than the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to bend your knee before a holy God and name his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your savior? Because you realize you can't do it alone? That's salvation. God will transform you. He says, for in it, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's what we're after. See, we're not after just cleaning up. We're not after just putting on a new suit of clothes. We're after God's righteousness. We need the righteousness of God somehow to be transferred to us if we're ever going to be in heaven one day. And that comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the bad news. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay? God is a God of love, but he also is a God of judgment. There's a God of a, a wrathfulness to God. It, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, that's what's happening in America. People are suppressing the truth. What is the truth? This is the truth. And you see it every, every time you speak up. Oh, you know, the separation of church and state there. I mean, as a pastor, they invite me to come down and pray at the, uh, the, the little meetings they have, the little, uh, what do they call them, city council meetings. Well, now, now pastor, you know, don't, don't mention Jesus. Don't, don't want you to mention, you know, any of those things. I'm like, well, you asked me to come and pray. What, what am I supposed to do? I'm sure if somebody went down there and prayed in the name of Allah, oh, that'd be okay. That's all right. You know, we've got to be tolerant to these people. But boy, you mentioned the name of Jesus Christ, man, people start hopping all over the place. They suppress it. They don't want anything to do with it. I mean, is it me or at various sporting events, do you see less and less of, and I know this is a silly thing, but people used to hold up big boards, you know, John 3.16, or whatever. I don't see that that much anymore. See, the word of God is basically being suppressed. It's being suppressed by an enemy that realizes this very verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. See, the gospel comes out of the word of God. If we don't have the word of God, we can't communicate the gospel. Difficult. And verse 18 clearly says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, anybody who suppresses the truth. Look at what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. What you got to do is go outside and look around. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They're without excuse. For although they, look at what it says, knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts, it says, were darkened. Claiming to be wise. You ever talk to an intellectual professor that totally into the whole evolution thing? And well, they just claim all this wisdom and all this knowledge. And it says they became fools. They exchanged, and this is important, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. What's that mean? It means they're more, more involved with protecting the environment than they are the unborn child. They'd move heaven and earth to save some silly whale. It's okay, you just take a little pill and kill your unborn baby. Tune of thousands every day. That's fine. No big deal. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. If you look down in these next couple of verses, you'll hear that over and over. He gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What's the truth about God? That there's only one God. He is true God. He is loving God. He is the holy God. What's the lie? I can be my own God. I'm going to recreate my own God in myself. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I'm in charge. I don't have to go by some book they call the Bible. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served, look at what it says, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He's not even done yet. But he's just got to throw an amen in there because he's just so into this. Do you think we worship the creature rather than the creator today in our society? I think so. You don't have to, you know, I'm not saying you can't love animals and keep your little pets and do whatever you want with them. That's fine. That's good. God gave us those things to enjoy. But when you start worshiping them more than God, you got a problem. Because without God, they wouldn't be here. <laughs> See, that's, that's the misnomer. That's the misunderstanding they have. The problem is, is when we knew God, we glorified him not as God. We have taken God out of the public arena. We forced him out in the name of political correctness, you might say. In the name of tolerance. We don't want to offend anybody. And in doing so, we've actually bl blasphemed the name of the God, the creator who created us. We don't give him thanks. Verse 
22 there, or in verse 21, it says, although they knew God, did not honor him as God or give him thanks, they became futile or empty in their thinking. Moreno is the word in the Greek. It means moron. That's what it means. Worshiping dolphins and spotted owls and all kinds of weird things. And that's not just a problem in America, beloved. That's a problem across the globe. It's everybody. Acts 14 says God has allowed all the nations to go their own way. See, that's the history of the world. The wrath of God is revealed against this. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature homosexuality and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another men committing shameless acts with men no no it's not shameless it's just an alternative lifestyle i find it ironic they call that lifestyle being gay which used to mean happy and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up once again to a debased mind. A debased mind. A warped mind. To do what ought not to be done. I mean, just think over the last couple of years, some of the things, just take our, our politicians. Some of the things that these politicians have done that normal people even would say, that is weird. Taking pictures of themselves and sending it to people and all sorts of weird things. And yet, our society just kind of, well, that's their private thing. <laughs> just kind of laugh it off. That's sick. Something wrong. The debased mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I mean, isn't this where we're living today? Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but listen to this, but they give approval to those who practice them. (laughs) And you want God to bless America? Hello? I mean, God, in all his... Justice should be hammering out major judgment on our country. Five different forms of God's wrath. First, there's eternal wrath. That's everlasting punishment in hell. Eternal wrath. 
That's not in view here. Secondly, there's also what we call eschatological wrath. Got to get it out there. And that's the wrath of God that unfolds at the end of the age. We've seen that in the, when we talked about the Great Tribulation, when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth in the book of Revelation. That's future. Thirdly, there's a cataclysmic wrath. That's the wrath of God that comes on like back in the Old Testament in Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed those cities. When God destroys the Seder or Chorazin or Capernaum in the New Testament. There's that cataclysmic wrath. We see that even now, the earthquakes and tsunamis, things like that. It's the wrath of God. Fourthly, what we call natural wrath. God has built into the fabric of the human life a consequence to sin. And some of that consequence, by the way, is natural. If you drink a lot of alcohol, you become an alcoholic, you get cirrhosis of the liver, and you die. It's a natural effect. If you sin and live a life of immorality and get involved in homosexuality and and are sexually promiscuous, you might end up with a sexually transmitted disease or wind up with AIDS and die. See, it's it's a sowing and reaping principle. We're not talking about eternal wrath here. We're not talking about the eschatological wrath, the cataclysmic wrath, or the natural wrath. I think here is the fifth kind of wrath, and this is what we're talking about, and I think it's the worst one. It's the wrath of abandonment. See, this is when God gives you up. He steps back, he lets go, and he says, you know what? You want it? Have it. Go for it. There's no more restraining grace. They want their sin, let them have it. I would not make a good politician. Just wouldn't. If it was up to me after this last election, if I was on the other side, I'd just step back and say, you know what? Go for it. Do whatever you want. I'll even vote for it. I really don't care anymore. Just to prove that what your little ideas and what you think is going to work isn't. And then we'll take a little poll at the end of four years and see where our country's at. But that's not being a good politician. You've got to stand on principle and fight for the principle. I understand that. But, boy, I'll tell you, let's just hurry up and get it over with. Let's not draw it out. That wrath of abandonment is scary. Because it not only affects a nation, but it can affect individuals. It can affect even a church. You know, we have to remember that God's grace is with us, yes. And I believe God has been more than gracious to us over the years in this country. But when you go back all the way even to the the 1960s, when you had the whole sexual revolution start. You know, just let go and do whatever you want. Now we're drowning in a sea of pornography. But it's just a business. 
It's not hurting anybody. See, when God lets a nation go, first of all, they sink into immorality. Then they sink into homosexuality. First, it's immorality among the heterosexuals. Then it becomes homosexuality. And then their mind is just so depraved, they're inventing ways to do evil continuously. I mean, that's the state in which we find ourselves. So when you stop and you ask, well, can we pray for God's blessing on America? You can pray all you want. I don't think it's going to come. Not the state in which it's in now. I'm more inclined to God to let your judgment fall. I know where I'm going. I think that's the only thing that's ever going to clean this nation up. We need to come before a holy God and confess our sins. We need to return to God and His Word. And we need to return to a semblance of guilt over these wrongdoings. See, today, guilt is not a nice thing. Guilt is something that's bad. Ann Landers wrote this. Guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. Charles Dreyer, in his book, Your Erroneous Zones, said this. Guilt must be exterminated, spray-cleaned, and sterilized forever. From the wonderful wisdom of MTV comes this next quote. No sin as is evil as the killjoy attitude of those who think someone's behavior is an offense to some holy God. Talk about no guilt. You know, we live in a society where we want to have self-esteem, not guilt. John Owen, who wrote the book, The Mortification of Sin, says this, if you want to kill sin, load your conscience with the guilt of it. If you want to kill sin in your life, load your conscience with the guilt of it. See, today, we're impervious to guilt. We don't want to make people feel guilty. Well, that's not right to make people feel guilty. You have immorality and homosexuality and all sorts of things all around us, but you know, we, we can't you know, make them feel judged or feel guilty. And your, your, your child who misbehaves, well, they, you know, they're either ADD, HDP, ODD, whatever. It's just an excuse. I mean, you know, we, we've taken all these consequences for behavior and put them on a label. And we need to be careful about that. We want to be blessed. We need to get back to the book. We need to get back to knowing who we really are. And that's what I mean by guilt. Understanding that we are lost before a holy God. There's no hope for us outside of God's grace. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If you want to be blessed, go to God. He will bless you. Psalm 40, I wrote it there in your outline, verse 4. Blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. We need to be reminded, beloved, that if 
we care about our country and we care about its future. We should care enough to care about our own individual spirituality. Where are we at before the Lord? Are we doing everything we can to carry out the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world? Ephesians 1 Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, believers, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are the next two words? In Christ. You can only have the blessing of God in Christ. Outside of it, you're utterly lost forever. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we pray that we would heed these words from your word. Lord, this isn't, doesn't mean we raise the white flag and give up on America. But we do need to understand that your judgment will fall on any nation that turns away from your principles, from your precepts, from your word. That desires to hold its impact down to stifle it. Father, I can't help believing that's why you left the church here. You left the church here to be that vocal spokesman for your word. Lord, you knew what was going to happen last week. You know what's going to happen next week. This doesn't catch you by surprise. But it should elevate our desire to increase the message that God forgives. That God forgives sin through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way He forgives. I pray that we would be diligent as believers to reach out to neighbors and loved ones and family members and be willing to share the message that you've shared with us that has transformed our own lives. That we would see many come to Christ. It's not about changing politically. It's not even about changing the morals of people. But it's about seeing you transform their heart from darkness to light through the glorious power of the gospel which you've entrusted to us to take to that lost and dying world. Father, may our hope not be in politicians or in government, but may our hope be found in you, our Lord and Savior. Father, if there's anyone here today who has yet to put their faith or trust in you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would not pass up another moment, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I've been trying for years. Lord, I I pray that your promise and your word to save me is true, and I'm, I'm trusting you to do that. I want to commit my life to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you to save me today. He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Father, we thank you for our time here today, and pray that you would bless bless us as we leave this place, and bless our fellowship over in the fellowship hall afterwards. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together.